It all started when I found this crucifix. It was in an old shoebox along with letters and photos from the 1960s, wrapped carefully in tissue paper, hidden away at the back of the cupboard in my granddad John's bedroom. He had died in 1975, but his room had stayed much the same. I came down the stairs with my discovery. What's this? I asked my auntie Larry, holding up the ancient relic. Every Sunday, I drove to Enniskillen to visit her, my elderly aunt Letitia, Letty for short, my mother's only sister and the last of the family still alive. She was 80 and unable to get out. Chronic arthritis had left her twisted with pain, but she still had all her marbles. What are you doing with that? She snapped. And then, like a child who's just been discovered caught in a lie, she began to gabble her words. It's a secret. We don't talk about it. Now put the box back upstairs. I wasn't going to do that. I had always been interested in finding out about family. So I picked up the scab. Was Grand John a Catholic? I asked. Auntie Letty breathed in deeply and then relieved to have to keep the secret no more. The words came tumbling out. He was, but it was a secret. Your daddy never knew, or he would never have married your mother, the daughter of a mixed marriage. Anyway, we don't keep in touch with the ones in Derry. They ran here after your granddad died, but I put the phone down all over. <laughs> now, finding out something like this today is not like finding it out in 1975. I'd like to think that we've moved on a bit from imagining that mixed marriages are the devil's doing. But then my grandparents met and fell in love in 1920. John Campbell was born in Wellington Street in Derry, Stroke, Londonderry, in 1896, the eldest boy in a family of 16 children. They lived in a small terrace house in the middle of the bogside, crammed in like brooms in a cupboard. Mornings saw them all tumble out onto the streets with a piece and a swig of tea, half-mast trousers and mischief on their mind. They were poor, but they were loved. John dreamt of emigrating to America, but when he was 17, his father was killed in an accident and he had to become the head of the family. The actual words on his father's death certificate read, cause of death, found dead in a field from overdose of the grog. <laughs> My great-grandfather had been in the field next to the brewery trying to siphon off some of his beloved drink. Whether the overdose of booze or the cold or the combination of the two had done for him, it was irrefutable that it was the drink what done him in. Now that's something you keep secret when your daughter brings home a respectable young Presbyterian boy years later. John had to get a job, and there were precious few of those in 1914. It was wartime, and so he enlisted in the Inniskillen Fusiliers. He fought in Gallipoli and in the trenches in France. Years later, when I was a young girl, I remember him showing me his wounds purple dips in his skin that I could put my finger in. My gentle granda, who had never wanted to be a machine gunner, had carried out the gut-wrenching tasks required of him in battle until shrapnel got him on a boat home. And it was after the war, while walking to the bedding office in Inniskillen, that he met my granny Lily. He always said of her that she was the most beautiful girl he had ever seen, skin creamy white and jet black hair. The two of them just had to be with each other. Lily was a Protestant and from a strict family. 
Her parents were not intolerant of the Catholic religion, but her older brothers were, and they had no time for the other side. Rough boys who liked to look after their sister, Lily had to sneak around if she wanted to spend time with John. They had secret walks and trips to the pictures, but they both knew that if they wanted to be together, they had to choose a side. Lily chose John's, and they eloped to Derry where they got married in the chapel. His family were all there, but none of Lily's. She loved him that much. She had run from everyone and everything that was her life in Inniskillen, and it might as well have been another land that she had fled to, for even if tensions had mellowed with time, there was neither the money nor the easy transport to get back to Fermanagh. Lily and John moved in with the Campbell clan. It was 1924. John's mother, also called Letitia, did her best to welcome Lily into the family, but the adjustment was huge. Sixteen children, many of whom still lived at home, not much money and even less space. Lily soon became pregnant and in 1925, my mother Molly was born. Lily never settled in Derry. One day, she took Molly to the shops with John's sister, Mary Bridget. Leaving Mary B outside to watch the pram, she went into the grocer's and out through the back door. She took the first train to Inniskill and she left John behind. Mary Bridget waited for over an hour outside, but when she realised what had happened, she rushed back to Wellington Street, where my granda was up a ladder, whitewashing the front of the house. When he saw her with the empty pram, he slid down, his face ashen with shock. But he followed her, and he left his side behind. Moving in with her family, he had to accept the leaving of his. That was just the way it had to be. Lily's brothers accepted him, but on their terms, and that meant never mentioning his background. So he never did. The shoebox in his cupboard was his secret. Full of letters he wrote to his brothers over the years. The crucifix that was on the wall above his mother's bed. It contained his past. Lily, my mother, and the other three children he would go on to have with her became his future. In 2015, when I visited my Aunt Letty, there was a letter from Derry in her pile of bills and Danmark catalogues. It was an invitation to a reunion of the Campbells. What's this? I asked her tentatively. I'm not interested, she replied, but it was significant that she had not thrown it away. Would you mind if I went? I asked. Whatever you like yourself, she replied. It was as close to her blessing as I was going to get. The Campbell reunion took place in the Maldon Hotel by the city walls in Derry. Descendants of my granddad John's brothers and sisters had come from all over the world to be there. My sister and I were the only Protestants, but there was no doubt that these people were our family. Shared loves came out, poetry, writing, football, commitment to faith, humour, and they all knew about Uncle John, my granddad. He was like a loss that had been passed down through the generations. They had been hurt not to know about his death until after his funeral but they had forgiven my mum and her brothers and sister for that long ago. It was so out of character of my wonderful mother that I still don't understand that decision. I must assume that in 1975, in the midst of the troubles, she didn't feel able to share the secret. John and Lily stayed together until her death at the age of 63. My grandson never talked about her without tears in his eyes. I wear the wedding ring he gave her when they made their commitment to each other in the chapel in Derry. 
This ring cost so much. It not only took his savings at a time when money was in very short supply, but for John Campbell, it cost him his family. Last summer, my Aunt Letty died, but the secret didn't die with her. I think both my granda and my mum will be glad about that. Iris and Ted are my mummy's cousins in Derry. Their mummy was my mummy's godmother. A fact I only found out myself about five years ago when the secret of my Catholic family in the Bogside came out into the open. If you've heard any of my stories before, you will know that it all started when I found a crucifix in a box in my Granda Campbell's bedroom. After that, it became a case of a do-it-yourself, who do you think you are, with a dash of cash in the attic on the side. Turns out the crucifix is very old, probably my great-grandmother's, but it's not valuable, although the family that it led us to are. In fact, they are priceless and well worth the rummaging around in the old boxes that revealed them. Aris and Ted are a brother and a sister, now in their 80s, neither of whom have married, so they have always lived together in the family home. Right now, they're pretty much locked down, only heading out to mass and for essentials. Last week, I put together a pick-you-up box for them. Jelly Babies, Nescafe Sessions of Caramel Latte, Crossword and Word Search Books, and Gene Kelly DVDs. Nothing like a bit of singing in the rain to get you through a dreary afternoon. The last time I saw them was well over a year ago. Newly found members of my mother's, my late mother's extended family, they have been able to fill me in on so much of what my Catholic grandfather, John, left behind and lost when he married my Protestant granny, Lily. When we say Derry stroke Londonderry, it has a sting in it for me. It is that great big divide down the middle of the words that is meant we are only discovering our family history now. The first time I met Aris and Ted was at a family reunion in the Malvern Hotel in the centre of Derry a few years ago. My oldest sister and I had decided to go along, if rather tentatively, to meet the descendants of my grandfather's 15 brothers and sisters, many of whom had come from across the world. As we got ourselves ready in the hotel room upstairs, my sister and I wondered if we were doing the right thing. What if we don't like them? What if they're not our kind of people? What if we have nothing in common with them? The doubts were gathering at a fast pace. Still, we had come this far and we needed to follow through, so we headed downstairs to the large reception room. The first thing I noticed as we entered the double doors was a white-haired, handsome man at the back of the room. In his 60s, he looked uncannily like my mother's brother, Kenneth. I believe I slightly gasped, such was my surprise and fascination with the family resemblance. He was my mother's cousin, Tony. Round the edges of the room were large freestanding display boards with the names of each of my grandfather's brothers and sisters. Joseph, Jane, Patrick, Daisy, Mary Bridget. And then there were grainy photos of these long lost aunts and uncles pinned underneath. 
People were milling around with drinks in their hands, reading all the information gathered about each of the individuals. The sisters who had emigrated to America, the brother who had run the local football team, the sister who had died young of TB, the grandmother who had reared them all on her own, supplementing her meagre income by raising pigs in the backyard of the house in Wellington Street. It was all hard to take in. There was my mummy's cousin, Jamesy, who had played football with Georgie Best, and another cousin who had written plays and poetry that had been on the radio. We were among people we had never met before, and yet they seemed familiar. They shared many of our interests and our passions. Deidre, who had researched and organized the whole event, came over and introduced herself. When realizing we were the Armagh connection, a bit of a ripple went round the room. Everyone had been expecting us, keen to see the family of their long lost Uncle John. We were made so, so welcome. It was then that we met Aris and Ted. They were warm and funny and full of chat about the old days. And Aris was able to tell me all about my great granny, the one who raised pigs, how she'd always tied her hair back and wore a long tie around pinny. We discovered that our granda had had a nickname, Banerjee, given to him because he had worked in a quarry named that just outside the Derry city. We find out that over the years, he had often gone back to Derry to visit his brothers and he had always kept in touch by letter. We saw pictures of them, so like our granda in the way they sat, cigarette in hand and dog at the feet. After lunch, there was a talk on family history and time for a chat. And then there was a break before the big celebration in the evening. My sister and I lay on our beds in the hotel, resting and chatting about what we had just experienced. That evening at the party, the crack was great. Dinner, photo opportunities, storytelling and songs at the front. At one point, someone played a recording of the radio story my mum's cousin had written. We all sat at our tables, listening carefully to the lovely Derry lilt of his accent as he described the bog side at the time of the 12th of July in the 1960s. The proddy dicks were getting ready for their bonfire, he said. They were running around, gathering their piles of wood and making their image of the Pope to pile on the top. We were sick of the proddy dicks. My sister and I looked at each other and began to snigger. We were the only proddy dicks in the room. The realization of this fact hit hard on everyone else and there was a sudden mad dash to the front of the room to turn off the cassette player. A very flustered looking Deidre said, well, this was a story of its time. Things have changed and moved on. She looked so uncomfortable, but my sister and I were just laughing at the absurdity of it all. Thinking of how similar things might've been heard round our way when there were different types of marches in our mass. The dancing went on well into the night. And when the Proclaimer's song, I Will Walk 500 Miles played, I had a really good jive with my mum's cousin, Tony. I'm sure this is a Proddy Dick song, I said loudly into his ear as we held hands and he spun me round. Nope, definitely not, he replied. Gotta be one of ours. And we laughed. All of my sisters and my brother, along with my nephew, have kept the connections of the Derry family. 
We have gone up to the city and shared meals together, each time learning a wee bit more about the uncles, aunts and cousins that our mother never got to know. We have visited St. Eugene's Cathedral, where she was christened in those early days when my grandparents lived in the city. When my sister in England's husband was very ill, Ted went especially to light a candle for him there, a very special and meaningful thing for my brother-in-law. Aris and Ted have visited us here in Armagh and the crack has always been mighty. COVID has put a hold on those lunches, those catch-ups, those trips up north, but it has not, and it will not, let a family that was divided for generations be divided ever again. Thank <laughs> you.